never, never in our history has it been about the men and the women against each other. Welcome to the latest episode of the Sawyer Business School Amplification Avenue podcast. I'm Skip Parham, a marketing professor here at Suffolk University in Boston, and I'm happy to be here once again with another conversation about the convergence of sports business, the media, and society. March is Women's History Month, and it's also the month that features Equal Pay Day, the date that women close the pay gap with their male counterparts from the previous calendar year. For today's conversation, I'm very happy to be joined by a very special guest and a true pioneer in the game of soccer in the U.S., April Heinrichs. April, a little quick, quickly before I bring you in on your background, you won three NCAA titles at the University of North Carolina. You helped lead the U.S. women's team to the first FIFA World Cup title in 1991. Uh, over your international playing career, you scored 35 goals in 45 matches. Uh, you've gone on to coach at various uh, levels, including as the U.S. women's national team coach from 2000 to 2004, leading that those two teams uh, to gold medals and a silver medal and, and two Olympic Games. You were the two-time player of the year uh, in U.S. soccer. You were the first uh, woman inducted into the National Soccer Hall of Fame. And in 2019, you were honored with the Werner Fricker, I hope I have that right, Builder Award which is given to individuals who have dedicated 20 years or more to growing the sport in the United States. So that's a little on your background. Let me set it up with a little bit more here before I bring you into the conversation uh, that takes us beyond just that it's Women's History Month. Um, this is the perfect time to talk with April because in February, we saw the final resolution to a long-standing uh, lawsuit between the U.S. Women's National Team and the U.S. Soccer Federation over the inequities between the men and women's national teams. Uh, as of the final agreement, and, and April, you can help us fill in some of the details here, but I don't want to dwell necessarily on the agreement, but look forward. Uh, U.S. Soccer has agreed to pay the men's and women's teams equally. I'd also like to note that as of the recording of this uh, episode, uh, seven-time WNBA All-Star Brittany Griner is being detained in Russia after leaving her Russian team. Um, Griner is overseas or plays overseas to supplement the income she makes as a, as a seven-time all-star in the WNBA. So, that, so that really highlights the pressure on women to maximize their careers and, and play outside of their season. So I think it sort of plays in nicely here. With that, let me bring in April. April, thanks so much for joining us. Skip, thanks for having me and for raising these questions and asking the questions and you know putting it out there that we can have a conversation about uh, how these all converge how yeah. women and and women in sports and the media and um how they can be role models but also have a platform for change so thank yeah. you yeah i mean the platform is is really you know exactly where i'm going with this podcast and that athletes just have an incredible platform in today's society to really advocate for change. And I don't know that there's a better example than the women's uh, U.S. national soccer team, particularly when you look at their book of performance, which is off the charts, right? It's really not even comparable between the men's team. So they were, if anyone had a strong point of leverage, I think it's this club in particular. So let's, let's jump in here. Uh, you played the game at the highest level. You've coached the highest level. 
you've worked with, you know, you were, you, you started the generation of great um, American women's soccer players. You worked with all these players. Um, how do you look back on this fight for uh, equity or equality in the course of your career um, in soccer? Mm. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is just how great. Think about it. They are currently employed. They have taken their employer to court to sue their employer for more pay and equal rights and equal opportunity. There's not many people that do that. Usually people leave their work of uh, place of employment and then they uh, go take a lawsuit. But and in the peak of their careers. Um, so I just feel like they're so brave in that regard to take this on while they're still playing and, you know, have, there's a risk to them. It's a risk to their future. It's a risk to their, um, the U S U S soccer, not wanting them. And yet they did it and they've succeeded. So uh, I think, you know, I certainly would not have had this sort of vision that these players, the current players have, mm there were some players that played in my generation that that were um, quite outspoken at the time. I was relatively um, about the game and the things that mm -hmm. go on between the lines. Yeah. But um, I still am pretty in awe of these women. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're right. Um, you know, they risk everything. And, and if they were to tear down the whole infrastructure, then then what's left, but they, um, they risked it all and and they've won. I mean, I think, but correct me if I'm wrong on that. And, and I'm interested in your perspective on this because it was more than just about compensation. Uh, it was about facilities. It's about travel. It's about uh, the overall investment in the women's game as, as compared to the men's game. Um, so from an insider, but from an outsider's perspective, um, can you say, can we say that the women's team is now on par with the men's team in every important area or every area that matters? Well, I think we're hopeful about that. I don't know factually, I haven't heard. I don't know how quickly all of this will be enacted. Um, I know that sometimes it always felt like there was a shell game of money being moved around or we were being told that, you know, what, what was happening at the youth level was equitable on both the men's and the, and the women's side. But um, I think time will tell, we'll know for sure. Um, I think, yeah, when we see, you know, there was a time where U.S. soccer would argue that females should only get $50, uh, in per diem money and, um, that men were getting $75 for per diem. But if we went to a restaurant, um, it was the same, you'd paid the same amount. Yeah. So I don't know of a restaurant that charges women less than they I do know, men. I know. I know. So, you know, those kind of things, I think that there's going to be clarity. I think that the current president, uh, we've recently voted in a new president, not a new president, um, the same president we had for two years, but she was kind of in an interim position. Mm -hmm. And, oh, hold on. Oh, thank you. No, right. so April's fresh off some travel um, <laughs> from from Germany, so maybe hasn't been seen at home uh, for a oh, couple of weeks okay. or so. So just got a special yeah. gift during the, <laughs> during the interview. Sweet. And he clearly didn't know I was on a live interview or a, you know, an interview <laughs> that was being recorded live. So 
no worries it's a podcast probably gonna have to edit that (laughs) no no we're gonna roll with it it's a podcast so we don't worry about that stuff yeah when's the last time you got a hand delivered fresh rose on one of your podcasts uh so yeah what i was saying is you know there were there were some inequities that were just so obvious and that's frustrating that's infuriating over time right that yeah. uh, the men's under 20 coach is getting paid remarkably different amounts of money than the women's under 20 coach or the women. And this doesn't, this lawsuit doesn't even in, include employees. It was just the women's team. Just the team. So I digress a bit, but um, there were, you know, three massage therapists going to the men's team and one for the women. Sometimes these are mm-hmm. the sort of things that they've argued for, for decades um, same amount of uh, medical coverage. I don't know if you'll remember a situation, but uh, I'm going to go with about two, well, I guess now three years ago, the women were supposed to play in Hawaii, but when they landed, the field was so horrible, they canceled everything. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, you would just never put the men in a situation where nobody had done a site visit. Yeah. So all of these things are important. If you're talking about world-class athletes, um, peak performances, the expectations on our women are so high. Why yeah. would we not uh, get out in front of all these things and do the best we can in terms of staff support, medical support, uh, on-site visits, and you know, sort of pre-preparations, et cetera, and uh, having the same amount of, um, you know, there used to be a time, we've played a lot, we played typically, we play more games than the men because mm-hmm. the men, have a pro league that's pretty extensive and the women are we're still somewhat in our infancy with the pro league so um, i think that what we know about this lawsuit now is that um if u.s soccer didn't have the money they wouldn't have settled Mm -hmm. Mm. right yeah and they had the money yeah well from a selfish standpoint if you look at it from the, the top of the organization you look at a club that's just performing off the charts. Why wouldn't you do everything to make that team as competitive as possible so they continue that domination? Because sponsors yeah. want to, Americans want to back winners. We know that, um, you know, that's in our DNA. Uh, so they don't care if it's men's or women's winning. They want to win. They want to see America dominate. We're very selfish like that. So why wouldn't you do everything to invest in that team? But not at the sacrifice of the men's team. You should be able to do yep. both. We'd like to think we could be um, at the top of each um, each gender's, you know, pyramid, so to speak. So what does this mean? And, and I've been very conscious in my, my um, questions to you in advance and in this conversation um, and not making it male versus female necessarily, but talk about the game itself. Um, so how can this, the fact that the women now um, have parity, uh, now being put in the best position to be successful. How can this help grow the game of soccer in the United States, which still hasn't reached its ceiling and has probably a lot of room to go to grow and, and get bigger and better? Yeah, well, you have to tip your hat to the men to begin with. So they've never uh, come out and said things that are irritating to them. And uh, on, the, on the other side of that, the women have never made it about um, taking from the men. And so never, never in our history has it been about the men and the women against each other. It's been about the Federation um, treating world-class athletes respectfully. And it's been about, um, look, if you take us for granted, we'll slip in the rankings. We are incredibly Federation dependent. 
not every country in the world of women's soccer is federation dependent. We are mm -hmm. incredibly federation dependent. Our resources go down, so too will uh, our competitiveness because there's a direct correlation. Mm -hmm. uh, without the number of games that we play, without the number of environments we put our athletes in, without the number of camps we have when there's not a FIFA window, um, the, without the amount of support and professional support in between FIFA windows and games, we just wouldn't be able to have the most finely tuned female athletes in the world. Mm -hmm. So you got to tip your hat to, to the fact that it's never been about the men and the women. Um, I think um, there's a younger generation of employees at U.S. Soccer that get it now. And it's a want to rather than a have to. I, you know, I think, I think that, uh, you know, in the early days, there were these, well, there are women are not ready or, well, we don't have the money or the women don't bring in money. That is an old, archaic, rusty argument that the women don't bring in the same amount of money as the men. Right. Um, that's an argument we've been making at the collegiate level for 20 years, really. Mm -hmm. And the answer is, well, wait a minute. Um, all the people that are donating their estates those are men that went to colleges way before women were allowed to go to colleges. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those are men that uh, have been a mass, been able to amass a fortune because of the opportunities and advances they've had in the world. Uh, and women just haven't amassed fortunes to donate to women's soccer programs. Yeah, so yeah. what we've seen is we've got this new generation of um, male leadership coming in, but also female leadership. As I mentioned, our, our president is a female. Yeah former player. Mm -hmm. So uh, those are all good signs that it's, it's going to be, there's going to be a not too, not in the too distant future, a time where we don't talk about women need women, you know, and it's always a fight. Mm -hmm. I can remember mm -hmm. when I was at U.S. soccer, somewhere between 20, uh, 2000 and 2004, I remember the general secretary really calling me out on this word fight. And he's like, why does it always have to be a fight with you? And I'm like, well, I can change the word to advocate if you want. I, I need to advocate for more yeah. things. I can change it. If that makes you feel better, I'll change the word to advocate. But the truth is you're not just getting to us because we're a men's team. And so he really got put back on that. Yeah. So I think it's new day now. Yeah. So what beyond the, the idea that, um, you know, women are holding senior executive, senior executive positions and could become the future donors of, uh, these collegiate programs or other programs, what is going to make uh, women's soccer less dependent on the federation? Is it sponsors stepping up and and you know either targeting women as a as a marketplace and using soccer as a way to sell their own products? What makes it less uh, federation dependent? Oh well, um, I, well. In the absence of a federation, we would need a top shelf division one women's professional league. Mm -hmm. And we have a very good women's professional league, but we've also had some challenges. Yeah. Um, it's only 10 years old. Our men's professional league is, I think, 26 or 27 years mm -hmm. old. Mm -hmm. You know, our average attendance, you know, in the early days was 2,000, you know, maybe it's 6,000 or 7,000 with some really highs. We've had 15, 17,000, I think, attend some games. You know, the men are, the, I don't know the men's actual uh, average attendance in the MLS, but I'm going to go with over 20,000. Yeah. So in the absence of a league that's that sustainable, 
We need the Federation to pursue sponsorship as aggressively and daily in women's soccer as we, we do in men's soccer. I used to say also when I worked for US soccer, I feel like sometimes like there's a handful of us that wake up every day thinking about worrying about trying to solve problems for women's soccer. There's a handful of us. And yet there's a mm-hmm. hundred employees at US soccer. Who yeah. are they waking up to develop? They were waking up to develop marketing deals for men's soccer, media deals for the men's coaches. Um, you know, more platforms to improve the men's game. The, mm-hmm. the youth development program that U.S. soccer put in place for boys was 10 years old before they ever did the same thing for women's soccer. Wow. So, you know, and, and the rationale was the men need it more. Ooh, well, wait, you know, we still struggle to develop sophisticated players. Yeah. And it starts at the youth level. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's some steps we can still take. And uh, when all employees at U.S. Soccer wake up thinking, what can I do to improve soccer? That's going to be where when we really arrive. Yeah. Not when can, what can I do to improve men's soccer or women's soccer? What can I do to improve soccer? When all the employees at U.S. Soccer are doing that, that's a good thing. I, I agree 100% on that. Uh, and to jump ahead a couple of, of questions that I had on my list here. Um, do you think that the World Women's World Cup We'll come back in 2027, I think would be the next availability. And can that be used as an impetus to grow soccer? Again, we're going to have the U.S. World Cup here, uh, the Men's World Cup um, coming up in 2026. But would a Women's World Cup on the follow-up of that really, you know, take soccer to the empty level? Well, it would It would definitely be good timing for a number of reasons. Um, without an event on a home soil, for the foreseeable future. What we're finding is that we have to travel more. We're okay, we're good with traveling, no problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's hard to get countries to come here now. So um, it's it's hard in non-World Cup years to get serious competition to come to the US because the windows of time for um, national team players to travel during the regular course of the year, it's really short, really yeah. demanding. Europe, on the other hand, they can fly from, you know, England to France and um, in 20 minutes or take a boat in 20 minutes and then play two great games against each other. Yeah, yeah. So it's much more cost effective um, in Europe. And Europe is the most explosive we've ever seen in women's soccer of what's happening in Europe right now. So uh, we have to keep our eye on the target and the threats. The threats are Europe, Mm -hmm. Spain, France. Uh, Germany, Sweden played the best soccer I've ever seen them play in in the summer of 2021 at the Olympics. England is pouring money into the women's game. Um, And then there's outliers like Portugal and Australia and Norway and uh, sorry, I failed to mention the Netherlands who've twice made it to the finals of the European Championships and the Women's World Cup back to back. So, you know, the explosion of money in being poured into the women's game in Europe is uh, the single biggest threat we face today. Yeah. Well, you're making a great case for continued and increased investment in the, in the women's game to main, maintain that uh, that dominance. So let's go beyond soccer itself. Uh, the idea that uh, the, the women of the U.S. national team who play on an unbelievably high level uh, are winning when in, in, in areas that the men are not. Uh, but what does this mean for future generations of women across all sports, not just soccer, but what does this say about 
uh, to the, the next generation of young female athletes who want to play whatever it's sport it is? How inspiring is this or what can it mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I genuinely believe our women are role models for teenage girls, teenage boys, women in their 30s who are fighting for gender equity in the workplace. Um, and, you know, kids under, you know, under 10 because they just emulate quickly. They see something mm -hmm. they want to emulate. So I think it's, um, I, I honestly think our women's team is changing our society. Yeah. Uh, for the positive. Um, we're celebrating women, female athletes. Uh, there's less objectification of female uh, body types and, you know, different types of, of uh, women out there. There's more, um, the women are constantly on their platforms talking about being kind, be kind to one another. What a great mm -hmm. message from our women. Um, they use their platforms to um, donate time and money. They use their platform to, for change. Um, so I feel like our women are changing our society in a really positive way that uh, no one, not me, I certainly could not have imagined it. Um, and, you know, I don't, I think it's a national consciousness now, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's not a remote event that we hear about every four years, like say, uh, sorry to pick on a sport. I do genuinely actually quite enjoy, but curling, for example, mm -hmm. curling only comes into our consciousness during the winter Olympics. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, so um, I see our women uh, forcing themselves into the consciousness of, uh, America in a lot of ways on a, a number of levels, not just once every four years. Yeah. And by the way, think about it. We still, even to this day, we only play big events, um, the world cup every four years and the Olympics every four years. So that's two out of our four year cycle. We have big events, uh, but they, they stay in our consciousness in between those events. And that's going to be a challenge too, by the way, um, to keep doing because, uh, you know, there's only one Megan Rapino. Uh, yeah. coming around every every generation or so or Carly Lloyd in terms of her performance ability mm -hmm. or um, you know Julie Foudy in terms of her ability to use several platforms you know not just Twitter or um, you know at announcing at games I mean she's got her own platform at ESPN so mm -hmm. those are once in a generation type people so but I still think it's a national it's part of our national conscious now consciousness people care about women's soccer what's happening uh on the field, how are they doing? Who's going to replace uh, all these superstars we have up top? Who's going to replace Carly Lloyd? You know, how are we doing in the defense? Have we replaced Car uh, Hope Solo? Those are questions they're all asking. But also, what are the women up to these days? Are they, yeah. um, you know, at the White House uh, trying to advocate for women's rights? And I love what what our women recently said: "When we win, all women win," and mm -hmm. I think that's true. Yeah. When when the U.S. women win, we all win. I, I agree. And, and look, I, I see it in my own house. My, both my wife and I work as marketers. Um, yeah. We've got the same amount of time in our career. And only till recently did she make as much as I did. And, and I think she worked harder and her job was tougher. So I can, yeah. you know, we all see it in our own households. Um, yeah. So I'm glad you, you mentioned just the importance of what this, you know, what this can translate into um, um, as it relates to greater society. And I want to push a little bit further in on, you know, there's only one Megan, there's only one Carly Lloyd. Um, 
there's only one Billie Jean King, right? And she's been sort of the standard bearer of, of, of this fight. And she was at the Super Bowl this year. And look, I, I be candid. I, I barely remember Billie Jean playing tennis. I'm not sure I do remember her playing tennis. I remember um, Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova, but not Billie Jean, but she's still sort of that face. So mm. when you look at this current generation of women who are using their platforms, who have obviously performed at the highest of levels, can you see one of those, um, those athletes um, 30 years from now still being sort of that standard bearer and, and, and not necessarily the face, but a face, a big, a big face in this fight that doesn't end today, doesn't end tomorrow, but continues? Oh, not just one. We have several. We have several women, I think, will be on uh, the global stage for many years to come. And I think Julie Foudy, as I mentioned already, and Megan Rapino. Um, the next generation is yet to be determined, but I do think they're once in a generation type people with an influence and a power and um, a, um, a fresh way of looking at things, a fresh perspective. Um, you know, I personally can remember when the national anthem thing came up, first came up and I was like, ah, don't take a name, you know? And then mm -hmm. once I started to think about it and I heard the conversation, and I was like, you know what? It's not about me and my personal feelings about the national anthem, really. And it shouldn't be. Um, I totally flipped and, mm -hmm. and really understood it, really understood it. Um, and I would take an E now. Um, but I can't oh. say that I would have been the first to do that. These women have led us. They've led us to think in a different way. So, you know, I do remember Billie Jean King playing. I remember her challenge. I remember her being the spokesperson of Title IX. Title IX legislation mm -hmm. changed my life. It was yep. passed in 1972, mm -hmm. but it really didn't start. I, I, I played, this is what I tell people all the time. If I was five years older, I would not have anything, be anywhere, I'd not be educated. I would not be talking to you right now, Skip. I would not have traveled the world and gotten my college education, et cetera. Because if I was five years older, I would not have been able to play high school soccer. I would not have been able to go get a scholarship in college soccer. Mm -hmm. right? I would not have played. I probably would have been retired by the time our U.S. women had the first national yeah. team program. Yeah. So I do remember Billie Jean King vividly. I've met her. She is like a cherished little thing I'd like to put my arms around and hug and say thank you every time I ever see her. And you know, the, the Title IX legislation, it, it wasn't really, it passed in 72, but it wasn't starting to be influenced or enforced until around the 90s. Yeah. And then, you know, we started having grown men in their 30s and 40s or having children and saying, hey, I got a boy and a girl and I want them both to be able to play softball or bas baseball. I got yeah. a boy and a girl and I want my daughter to be able to play soccer. I got a boy and a girl and I want my daughter to be able to play basketball just like my man and or my son and if if they play it I want them to both have uniforms and locker rooms and this right it was the right, male right. generation and this is where Billie Jean King was so darn smart it wasn't about um disparaging men at all for her ever I've never heard her say a disparaging thing about men or, or a generalization about men it was yeah. we need the men to realize the women need the same opportunities and she always, always had uh, men on her side. Yeah. And I think this was, this was not just clever by her. This was um, needed. 
we needed mm -hmm. men to realize that their daughters and uh, needed the same opportunities for education and the same opportunities for development or the same opportunity for promotion as men have. Yeah, she was incredibly uh, and is incredibly uh, smart and strategic about her efforts. And, and she is a pioneer. And I don't know if you like the term, but uh, I certainly view you as a pioneer. I, I think in, in doing the research here, were you on the first teams at North Carolina or one of the first teams in, in, in North Carolina in terms of women's soccer? Mm. Mm. I believe there would say there was one to three years in front of me. I yeah. feel like they were NAIA maybe the year before the year before I got there. Yeah. And maybe they went NCAA the year before I got there. Yeah. Well, uh, that's great. You ha you've had a, an unbelievable career. And again, since the time you started playing and, and then coaching, you've, you've got, you've touched every single generation that's come along the way here. Uh, and the mm. success again, the success is unparalleled. Um, the only thing I could even compare it to would be the men's and women's basketball programs. But look, you know, basketball is more uh, endemic to the United States than soccer has been. We've sort of adopted that game and the women have, have excelled from the very beginning and uh, the men continue to find their way. So uh, congratulations to them. April, I, I really appreciate your time. Again, it's, it is Women's History Month, but we wanted, I wanted to do this because of that, um, that recent deal with the, the, win, the women's soccer team. So thank you again for, for your time. Thank you, Skip. My pleasure. Great, great. Um, before I close here, a quick mention about Suffolk University, our sponsor at Suffolk University, Sawyer Business School. You're steps away from life-changing internships, career connections, and Fortune 500 companies. Our classroom experiences are enhanced by our location. Being in the center of downtown Boston means you'll be right in the middle of innovation and the city's financial center. The Sawyer Business School offers both undergraduate business programs and graduate business programs. Choose from full-time, part-time, online, Saturday and summer courses. Enjoy small classes taught by professors who bring their expertise and their experience to the classroom from right here in Boston, across the country and around the world. Endless program and degree options are still here, are here waiting for you. Take the next step today. Visit suffolk.edu. And finally, to close this episode, a thank you to April again for joining us today, Alex Caruso for producing the podcast, and a thank you to our listeners for taking in another episode of the Sawyer Business School Amplification Avenue podcast presented by Suffolk University. Please look for future episodes on your favorite podcast app and be sure to subscribe, share, and rate. As always, I look forward to talking to you and with you again in the near future. Thanks. <laughs>